Well, it's the time now that we spend our attention on the Word of God, and if we could together turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. As was mentioned earlier, our text is verses 1 through 7, Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7. And if you would allow me, could we pray before we dive into this, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We are blessed beyond to have this treasure in our language that we might understand. And we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us. And we ask as we unpack this text that you would speak to our hearts. You would conform us more and more into the image of your Son. Be, be glorified here, Father. Magnify your Son and may you edify your church. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you could follow along as I read, just to set this in our minds before we unpack this. Verse 1 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Finally, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, as we know, because we have been exposed to the gospel sometime in our life, and if we've been in church in any Bible teaching church, we know, and if we've been in the Bible at any length in our lives, we know that the true gospel is the power of God to save. It alone is the power to rescue. It alone is the power to deliver, to transform. By the gospel, God takes spiritually dead persons who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is only through the gospel of grace that one becomes a member of God's family and no longer a member of Satan's family. The message of Christ and him crucified, resurrected, was sent by God from Jerusalem to the far ends of the earth. And as a result, countless millions have been rescued over the millennia. On every continent, the gospel has gone forth. In fact, so effective was the gospel in the early years in the early church that by the beginning of the second century... Less than a hundred years after Christ, almost all of the pagan temples in the Roman Empire were closed because hardly anybody came to worship their false gods as they did before. If they weren't Christians, they were drawn to Christians and away from the paganism. They were in church by that second century. They believed the gospel of grace the gospel of Christ and him crucified, and it was accredited to them as righteousness. They were justified by faith alone apart 
from religious works. The early Christians were faithful to tell the gospel everywhere they went to everyone who came across their path. They faithfully proclaimed Christ. So faithful were they, as we mentioned before, that the temples were closed because of lack of people and the persecution arose from those who sold the idols and the animals that were used in the pagan worship. There was nobody to buy their wares. And so it was a financial hit to the pagans. And that's how persecution began to rise up in the early 2nd century. So faithful were the early church in proclaiming the gospel that we're learning about in Galatians. But listen to 1 Thessalonians this is a, a, a region where Paul went and shared the gospel, but he writes back to them in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and he says this, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, Thessalonians, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you, Thessalonian pagans, Turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They were so bold and so open that the news of them spread throughout the region of how they turned from pagan gods to serve the living Christ. Their lives, the early Christians, I'm saying just generally across the Roman Empire by this second century, the, the, their lives were so transformed, they were filled with joy, they were filled with love, because they had the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit, these people had a personal, intimate relationship with the living God. They were different than anybody that anybody that they had ever seen. You, get, you didn't see that in pagan temples, and you didn't see it in Judaism. But here's this group known as Christ followers, and they're different. They experienced his power, these, these new Christians did. They experienced the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul mentions it in chapter 3. You remember back in verse 2. Notice what he asked them here. This is the only thing I want to find out from you, 3-2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4 says... Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if, if it was in vain. Verse 5, finally, So then does he who provide you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, notice what they saw, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a new thing. This is the power of God being expressed. Power in their lives and through their lives. And this gospel turned this part of the world upside down. Upside down. They lived with hope, too. The gospel hope that this world is no longer their home. They're just pilgrims passing through. And they believed that to live was Christ and to die was gain. They believed that. They believed that they were looking forward to a heavenly country, that this was not their home. And all of this is by grace. All of this was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Through the gospel. Now, we're, as we think about the gospel and what I want to draw our attention to and that's connected to what we're saying here, revival comes about when the gospel is put forward, when, the, when all the shroud is removed and all you have 
is the pure gospel of the Galatians, of the Galatians epistle, of what Paul's defending that we've been looking at for months. That gospel is the means by which revival comes. We pray for revival. We long for revival. And we, it's not, it's not disassociated with the gospel. The gospel has to be the means by this happening. Revival is God's doing, but it's not apart from his gospel. In fact, I remind you, the Reformation of the 1500s was a great revival by God, but it was directly associated with the recovery of the true gospel of grace. Obviously, famously through Luther, but many, even people we've never heard of, whom God chose and taught the gospel, they were preaching the true gospel of grace around the 1500s into the middle 1500s, and God brought about a massive change through the gospel just as he did in the early church, just as he can do today. God could revive again, couldn't he? We long for that, but it will not be apart from the true gospel. The true gospel being lived and the true gospel being proclaimed by his people. So I just want to set that in our minds and that we would continue to pray for revival in our dark land, in our churches that are in this place. Let God's people be stirred to go back to the old, old story, the old, the old story of grace. Let us protect this gospel of grace from all opponents, from any and all who would insist on works of the law, and let us defend the gospel of grace and proclaim it. Now, this world is so lost, as you know, and we expect it to be morally corrupt because it's unregenerate, it's morally bankrupt, as it should be, because it's void of the Spirit. What do we expect? Spiritually destitute is this world. Guess what? They need us. The world needs us to be faithful, to proclaim and live this gospel of grace, to be faithful like the Thessalonians, to protect it like Paul's calling the Galatians to do to be passionate about this gospel that brings about change. It is the only message that can awaken a dead sinner and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's the only message that can do that. And we have that message. We need to protect and guard it, and we need to be faithful to proclaim it to the far ends of this world and even across the street. It's the only hope this world has. As you know, in Galatians... Paul has been defending the gospel of grace that we're speaking about here. Justification is by faith alone from the works of the law. We we know that. In the third chapter of Galatians, he has shown how his gospel is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that it is part of, uh, fulfillment of the promises made by God to Abraham and to his seed. At the same time, we've learned from Galatians chapter 3 that Paul has shown the function of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law that the Judaizers insisted that we keep in order to be saved. Paul says the function of the law never was intended to save. It was only intended to reveal the wickedness of our sin and our depravity, and it was to lead us to Christ. As verse 24 says in chapter 3, therefore, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Since 317 in Galatians, 
Paul has been showing the contrast between living under law and living in the promise or living under grace. In the final verses of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, he has shown that the amazing blessings that come from those who place their faith in Christ. There's three that we looked at last week leading into chapter 4, but the three that are mentioned in the last few verses of chapter 3 A result of justification by faith is sonship. You're considered and called a son of God. You're in union with Christ and his people. And you are thirdly, you are heirs with Abraham and his seed, Christ. Those are incredible blessings that are not from works of the law, but by faith in the gospel. That leads us to chapter 4, verse 1. And he will continue with this methodical approach, um, almost like rehashing, but he's expanding, actually. He says some of, obviously, a lot of the same things, but he expands on it and goes deeper and wider. He, He is driving home the point that justification is by faith alone. The blessing of Abraham is for those who believe, not for those who are under the law, doing the works of the law. He really wants them to see the massive difference between those who are under Moses and those who are under grace. He wants them to see and realize again, and this is good for us as well, to realize again the incredible privilege that you and I possess as a result of our faith in Christ. Chapter 4, 1 through 7, he wants to show again that we know and understand our position before God as a result of our faith in Christ. And this he does. Why is he doing this? Again, is to encourage them and to encourage us to not fall prey to the false teachers who want to insist on legalism, to stay in the path of the gospel of free grace, to live by faith and not by works of the law. That's what he's just hammering and hammering and hammering. And I think that should... show us just how important this really is to protect this gospel of grace. How does Paul do it? Well, he will use a cultural illustration in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then he will apply it to himself, his readers, and obviously to us in verses 3 through 7. In that broad, simple breakup, I'm going to divide this into three parts to help us. What does he do in verses 1 through 3? He's going to show who we were before faith. In 4 and 5, he's simply going to show what did God do. And in 6 and 7, he's going to show who we are now. Who we were, verses 1 through 3, what God did, 4 and 5, who we are now in verses 6 and 7. Pick it up with me in verse 1 of chapter 4, and let's see what he says, who we were before faith in Christ. Now, I say... As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, obviously, the connection between verse 1 and 29 is this word heir. At the end of 29, it says heirs according to promise. Verse 1 says as long as the heir is a child. So he's using an illustration that's familiar to them. An heir is the son who will inherit the father's estate obviously but before he comes of age 
to a certain age of maturity, he practically is no different than a slave boy. He's, he, he, he has no rights like a slave. He owns nothing like a slave. He's basically just like a slave, though he owns everything. And in verses 1, you notice the contrast is between child, the heir who is a child, and the contrast between a slave there in verse 1. Now, even though at the end of the verse he owns everything, the, the heir is owner of everything that belongs to the father, but until he, again, until he is mature, he's no different than the slave. Now, it's interesting, the word child, the Greek term, they have many terms for children and babies and infants and sons and daughters and what have you. This word for child here is two words brought together, and it literally means one who's not able to talk. That's literally what it means. You're not able to speak. And it's so then it's often used to refer small children like an infant, not able to put together words. Figuratively, this word is used of a person who lacks experience, is untried or ignorant or simple-minded. The writer to the Hebrews used it of spiritually immature Christians, as did Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He says they cannot eat solid food because they're just infants. They need to mature. So here, the emphasis then on the word child in verse 1 of our text, this is a minor who is an uh, infant, immature intellectually and morally, and it's in contrast with a mature person. Now, I say that because Paul chooses that word in his illustration, so he's painting this picture that he wants us to get. Now, that child who is the heir is being contrasted or parallel in verse 1 to a slave. Now think about this. What of a slave? A slave owns nothing, but, in self, in, but instead he himself is owned by the master. The life of a slave is dominated by the will of the owner. The slave's will is taken up with the will of the master. The slave is not free to do as he pleases, but is subject to the wishes of the one who owns him. That's the emphasis of Paul's text here. Now, remember, he's, he's giving an illustration to set the stage of who we were before we came to faith in Christ. We're like a, an infant heir of a great kingdom who, because of their immaturity, is just like a slave. No different. Because look at what he says in verse 2. But he is under, he being the the slave and the child parallel there. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. The heir who is this infant young child is like compared to a slave who's under the authority of others. Now, by observation here, notice this. We notice that Paul uses this little preposition, hupo, which is translated under. Now, by observation, you start to see that Paul is using this everywhere in our text. Under, to be under something is to be subject to, is to be under the influence, under the domination, under the tyranny, under something that's good, under grace. It's to be enslaved, if you will. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law, notice, are under a curse. In 3.22, notice he uses it there. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. In verse 23, it says, For before faith came, we were kept in custody under what? The law. So that, that, that continually, Paul is showing in this text here 
that before we are saved, we are underneath, we are kept in custody, we are enslaved to the curse that comes from the law, to the law itself, to sin. In chapter 25, or verse 25, notice what it says in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer, what does your text say? Under a tutor. We've been released from under the tutor, you see. And then when you come to chapter 4, he uses under in verse 2, our text, under guardians and managers. In verse 3, notice, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In verse 5, so that we might redeem those who were under the law. So this is, the, I, this is Paul's emphasis in this text here and in this section to really show his readers and to us that what Christ has accomplished has set us free. This is a text on freedom because before you come to faith, you are in bondage. Whether you acknowledge it or not, right, you are in bondage. This world outside of Christ is enslaved to sin, to the law, under the curse, and under the tyranny of the devil. They're, they're kept under custody. We are, according to Romans 6, no longer under law, but under what? Grace. Grace is our master, you see. So Christians are no longer in this condition here. And this is, this is a glorious emphasis that the apostles say. And all of this is a result of the gospel, gloriously. So then, the child, back to our text, verses 1 and 2, who we were before we came to faith, He's showing this heir who's a child before he comes of age is no different than a slave because the child is not free to do as he pleases, but he's under, verse 2, guardians and managers. These are obviously simply people appointed by the father to watch over the child. The guardians, based on the word used there, watch over his physical well-being, and the manager is the word that's most often used for steward or stewardship. So to be real precise here, one who watches over his physical well-being, and the manager, steward, is one who watched over his financial well-being, his, his, his property, even though he's a child, okay? All right. What is the point of that? Is this, this child who's not mature enough to make decisions for himself is like a slave subject to all these people until when, in verse 2, until the date set by the father. The father determined when the child was to be considered mature enough. In the Jewish tradition, it was usually around 12 or 13 years old when the son would go through, like we mentioned last week, the bar mitzvah. In Rome culture, it was usually around 16, and there was a ceremony called toga virilis, where they exchanged the toga of a young child and exchanged it for the white toga of adulthood. Okay? In both places, there's, in both cultures, there was dates set by the father that maturity was expected and demanded and granted to this young man. Now, verse 2 says, until the date set by the father, the son then, until that date, obviously, is, is subject to the guardians and the tutors mentioned in 324 and the managers. After this date, upon reaching the age of maturity, he is identified and acknowledged publicly as an adult son, mature enough to take on the responsibilities and the position of adulthood. Freed from the subjection of the tutor, the guardians, and the manager. Delivered from them. 
I would think that would be a happy day. I'm kind of a rebel at heart, you know, so I could really be happy about that day. Wouldn't you be happy about that day? I'm no longer followed and shadowed around. I'm no longer told how to spend my money. I'm no longer told how to do anything. I'm set free because it's expected of me that they've accomplished their goal. Yeah, it's a happy day. <laughs> it's a real happy day. He's identified and acknowledged publicly as an adult son, mature enough to take on the position, responsibilities of the heir, freed from subjection, and free to enjoy emphasis, free to enjoy the privileges that come from this position of adult son. That's the emphasis. Verse 3, he applies this. From that illustration to show this, look at verse 3, so also we. Now here he brings it upon both he himself and all that are all his readers, Jews and Gentiles, all who place their faith in Christ, including us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the we there in verse 3. So also we. Just as clear as verses 1 and 2 are, he's applying it spiritually to us. Look at what it says. While we were children. That word children is the same word used for child in verse 1. While we were infants, immature, unable to speak, unable to mentally, intellectually decide anything. While we were morally immature. While in that condition, notice what it says in verse 3, we were held in bondage under. We were enslaved. We were in shackles under, this is fascinating, the elemental principles of the world. Verse 3, under the elemental things of the world, sorry. The word elemental is from the Greek term, Stoicheia, which means things placed side by side and in a row. That's literally what it means. And it's used of the letters of the alphabet, the ABCs, we would say. And then because the learning of the ABCs is the first lesson that any child learns in a literary education, it comes to mean rudiments or first principles or basics. In biology, for instance, an undeveloped, immature part of an, of, of an organ that's developing, say, in an embryo, when, 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 when that embryo is a preemie, when that baby is a preemie, the problem is, is that the lungs are not fully developed, and they use the word of rudimentary stage, the same Greek term. This term says, while we were infants, we were held in bondage under, oppressed by these basic things of the world. That's fascinating. These building blocks of the world. In Hebrews 5, the same term is used in, in a context of emphasis and maturity. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Listen to how this goes. In our term, it'll show up and you'll, you'll catch it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles, storkeia, of the oracles of God. You have come to need, listen now, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And there's our term for child. But solid food is for the mature. So the infant is in contrast with mature Elementary principles is showing that 
it's the basics of the oracles of God. He's rebuking them because by this stage in their Christian life, they should be teaching the things of God that are beyond the basics. Okay? Now, again, since the letters of the alphabet were regarded as the elements of which words and sentences were built, stoicheia in the Greek comes to be used of the elements which make up the material world. What, you're, what I'm trying to portray here, when I, what you learn from this word, it's not used in one simple meaning place. It has the idea of the basics of whatever it's talking about. The basics of grammar, the basics of biology, the basics of the oracles of God, the basics of language, and the, even the basic elements of the material world. Okay, Listen to 2 Peter 3.10. Again, since... He goes and says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements, there's our word, will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Okay, So the building blocks of our material world. Um, what's that table in chemistry called? Periodical table. That's the, that's the basic elements of the world, if that's what you're talking about. If you're talking about language, it's just the simple structure of letters building sentences and grammar. If you're, if you're talking about the word of God, the basics of, of the oracles of God, it would be repentance and faith alone. Those are the basics, you see. But look at our text. It says in 4.3, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things, notice what it says, of the world, the basic things of the world. We were enslaved to these basics of the world. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles, which is also fascinating, by the way. The basic elements which make up the world of which the world consists. What's he mean by world? Cosmos means order. The opposite is chaos. Right? As my pastor used to say, that ladies use cosmetics to bring into order that which is chaos, you know? <laughs> That's why it's called cosmetics. It's from the Greek word cosmeo, which means to bring order to, okay? The world, in your English Bible, most often, 90-some percent or more, goes back to the Greek term cosmos, okay? So here he's saying in verse 3, we, before we came to maturity, were held under bondage to these basic things of the world. Now, what's he mean, the world? Well, the world can speak of the earth, the dirt. It can mean that context. It can speak of the humans who reside on the earth. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, it wasn't the dirt. It was the people. It can refer to the ideological, philosophical systems of fallen humans who live in this world. For instance, listen to 1 John 5, 19. says, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He's not talking about the dirt. He's talking about humanity and the ideologies. Listen to 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world. Is that telling us to not love the people in the world? Of course it's not saying that. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he, he helps us in the next verse to define what he means. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the, that world there in context is the ideologies, the philosophies, the religious, the, the, the attitude, the mindset of the fallen planet against God. Don't love those things. Love the person, but not those things. So then, the religious teachings, doctrines, and philosophies, which are the building blocks of this fallen world's system, in the context of Galatians 4, because remember he's saying, before we were saved, we were held under this shackles of this basic things of the world. In the context, coming off of verse 2, he's connecting it with guardians and managers which is connected back to 324, which, of course, is the tutor in 324, which is also connected to the Mosaic law. So the point of this is this. The elemental things, the basic things, the rudimentary things of this world system are rules and regulations of a, of a works Righteousness system, which supposedly leads to righteousness and spiritual maturity, but it does not. We were held in bondage under those things. Now get this. <laughs> it is fascinating to this simple brain. This, this, this refers to rules and regulations of any religion. Because if you hold your finger here, go to Colossians 2, please. Colossians 2, because he uses the same word and idea here but he refers to it to worldly religions in Colossians 2 look at verse 8 please see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men and then look at the next phrase according to the elementary principles of the world the exact phrase we find in Galatians rather than according to Christ. So in this text here, he, I believe there, he's talking about worldly philosophies and empty deceptions that are not according to Christ, but they're according to the traditions of fallen men in this context. Okay. Now, look at chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 20. If you have died with Christ, to what? to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as verse 21? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are rules and regulations of any religion, he's saying. But it, let's just, even if it's just pagan religion, he is saying before they were saved, they were held in bondage under those rules and calls them the basic principles of this world. Okay? Now, if you come back to Galatians 4, please. This is fascinating. Paul includes the Mosaic law in these things. Because look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 and 10 of Galatians 4. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to weak and worthless, what things? Elemental things, storkeia, basic things, rudimentary things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Verse 10, he defines the elementary things 
observe days and months and seasons and years. And in the context, he's not delineating between Jewish and pagan. He lumps them all in the same bucket and calls them all rudimentary things of the world that hold the people in bondage. I think that's just fascinating, right? So all the rules of a pagan religion fit into the elementary things of the world. Amazingly, as we just said, it also includes the law of Moses. Now get this. Is Paul ignorant that the law of Moses comes from God? No. He's, one, he's fully aware of that. Even though it comes from God, he considers it the part of the elementary things of the world. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. With all its rules, though, and all its regulations, it does not lead to spiritual maturity. It keeps you in infancy and in bondage. That's amazing. This is what Paul is saying. One commentator said this concerning how the Jews and the law related. He speaks of a time during which the people of God lived under the law as the time they spent in infant class learning the ABCs. Kind of like Beck in second grade there, teaching her kids. Line after line, right? Word after word. This is what the law of Moses is being connected to, you see. He, says, he continues and says, after learning the ABCs, which for them amounted to the rudimentary notions of the world. But this was not merely a time of elementary education for them, according to Paul here. It was a time of bondage. It was a time of bondage. So just as an immature child is governed by rules and regulations, so also before the dawning of the light of the gospel, we were in bondage to the rudimentary things of the world. Whether you were pagan or Jewish, if you were under the law, any rules and regulations, you were, that, those rules and regulations did not lead you to spiritual maturity. They kept you in spiritual infancy, infancy and bondage. Now, a legalist would have a hard time with that, wouldn't he? He would, he would accuse you of being immature and licentious. You need to keep the rules like I do, right? Spiritual maturity is because you, uh, you cut your hair a certain way and you wear certain clothes and, you, you know, you don't, you don't eat, drink, or chew or go with girls who do, you know, all those kinds of things, right? Certain rules and regulations. That leads to spiritual maturity. Paul says it's just the opposite, it's just the opposite, which is amazing. Um, so then legalism of any type is to be an infant spiritually and morally. It's to be not only in elementary school, it's to be enslaved to its regulations. It's not the way to spiritual progress, but to spiritual digress. It's not freedom, but it can, it's continued slavery. Now, why are we tempted to legalism? I just ask that again because most of us are tempted to that. That's why the Galatians were foolish in chapter 3, verse 1. I mean, true believers can fall prey to legalism. Why is that we're tempted to legalism? It's because it appeals to my flesh. It appeals to my pride. I'm checking off boxes. I'm doing things. It makes me feel pretty good about myself, and God must accept me because I'm doing these certain things. That appeals to my flesh. It also, if you, if, could you go, please, to Col Colossians 2? Just to the right there. 
Colossians 2. And look where he finishes here. Because not only does uh, legalism appeal to my flesh, it has this outer appearance of holiness and godliness. Look at chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, we read this earlier, but we'll read it again. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Then look at verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, and look at the last phrase, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Legalism does nothing to help you overcome fleshly indulgence. It has no power, but it has the it looks the appearance of wisdom and self-abasement and false humility. It gives that appearance. That's why we're tempted to that. But back to Galatians. Paul says that that verse 3, we were held in bondage to these elementary principles of the world. So then before God saved us, before faith came, this was our condition. But notice the amazing love of God as Paul moves on into verse 4 and 5, please. Notice verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This text shows us that God pursued the slaves. It shows us that he came after us while we were in that condition in verse 3. Tim Keller often has some good things to say on the gospel. He says this. He, write, he says that Christianity is unique among all religions for it is about God's pursuit of us to draw us to himself. In every other religious system, people pursue their God hoping that their good behavior, keeping of rituals, good works, or other efforts, they will be accepted by the God they pursue. End of quote. We know from Romans 3.11 that no one seeks the true God. And apart from God, we would continue in our slavery to sin and in our, our enslavement to the law. And we would be spiritual, spiritual infants for our entire lives if it wasn't for God's grace. But look at verse 4. What did God do? Look at what he did and when he did it in verse 4. But when the fullness of time came. Fullness is the idea of completeness, totality, finish. The word time, there's two Greeks have two words for time. One is chronological time, succession, order, minute after minute, and one is era and epochs, large eras. This word here is chronological, sequence time, second after second, the marching of time. Maybe it could be translated when the time was fulfilled, it speaks of a predetermined time on the calendar, on the watch. When that time predetermined was reached, when it came, when it struck midnight, so to speak. Paul says here, 
that the, it's the moment which the completed period of time designated by God should elapse before the coming of the Son in incarnation. When that time was reached, verse 4 says, He would send forth His Son. The analogy of 1 and 2 that they would fully be aware of and, and maybe many were in the process themselves of being in verses 1 and 2 now are seeing that God, like an earthly father, has a preset time that was, that was reached. And so the father's in full control of what's going on. And he sends his son. One of the great phrases of the Bible, verse 4, God sent forth his son. The word sent forth, I mean, I think I know what that means, but then you start digging around and looking at the original language. It's an awesome word. The Greeks loved to pile up prepositions to expand a word or to change it all together. This word here is where we get the word apostle from, to be sent, to be sent away from apostellos, to be sent away from. It has the idea of one sending, and the one who sent is sent on a mission with the authority, with the credentials of the sender. Okay? In a, so it's like an ambassador. In addition to that idea of being sent away from, Paul adds another preposition to that word so that it means sent away from the presence of. He was sent, the son was sent out from his presence, out from his very presence on a mission. He was sent from his glory and radiance into the world. When the fullness of time came, when it was reached, God sent away from himself on a mission his son the motivation for that we learn from 1 John 4.10 is that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The father had a preset time motivated out of love for the sinners in, 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 our, in our context here, for the, for the child who is an heir but is under bondage, when the time was reached, that date set where that maturity would be reached, God sent his son out of love away from his presence into the world. The father is seen as the sender. The son is seen as in submission to the father's will, and he came willingly to do that which the father sent him to do. And we know that the son is no way inferior to the father, but willingly yielded to the father's will. He came on a mission. He came on his father's mission. And what was that mission according to verse 4 to, in verse 5? To redeem. He came to redeem. Now, this is fascinating here. When the father is said to send the son, the father is working out his predetermined plan. The clock struck midnight, as we said. Now it is time, the time that was set long ago. And so in preparation to the sending of his son, how, how much control does the father have? If you remember in Luke, he sends Gabriel, the angel, to a little town in Nazareth to a certain virgin named Mary, and he tells Gabriel to tell her that she's going to have a son, right? 
But the same, the same idea since it, in Luke chapter 2, the father, or chapter 1, the father sent the angel. The father sent John the Baptist as the preparation for Messiah. The father sent the son out from his presence, out of love, to accomplish his predetermined purpose. I can't leave this, but listen to this as well. If the father's motivated by love to send the son, and he is, according to 1 John, what does that say about the son in relationship to the father? It speaks of his preexistence. The preexistence is seen in this. The father sent his son to be born of a woman. Before he was born of a woman, he's already his son. He sent his son. It speaks to his preexistence. And I would also say, based on that, I, I would hold to his eternal sonship. He hasn't become the son of God. He is the son of God. He's always been the son of God. He's always existed. And the father sent him to be born of a woman, you see, to take on flesh. He did not become the son in Bethlehem. He became a man in Bethlehem. He's always the second person of the Trinity. He's always the Son of God. Fascinating that he's always enjoyed this second person of the Trinity, this, 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 this Son that God sent. He's always, think of this, he's always enjoyed the inter-Trinitarian love of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. And he's always existed to in, in sharing the Trinitarian glory, the heavenly radiant glory. He willingly yield, yielded that to the Father and came because he was sent by the Father out of love. And this is the clear testimony of Scripture. Okay? Jesus always, forever was saying that he was sent. The Father sent me. In the Gospel of John, that's an echo that throughout the Gospel of John. And listen to John 8, 42. I'm just going to cherry pick some of these, but listen to this. Jesus said to them in 8, 42, to the Pharisees who hated him, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because I came forth from him and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Father sent me. In John 16, 27 through 28, the Father himself loves you, says, the, says Jesus to his apostles the night of his arrest, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. He knows exactly who he is. He is the eternal son of God who was sent on a mission. He knows that he was sent. He's cognitive of that. He's conscious of that. He is fully aware of who he is. God in love sent his son when midnight was struck, according to Galatians 4. And the father sent him. How, how did, what, think of this. He came in submission to the father as the son. This greatly emphasizes to us, the extent of his love for God and for sinners, doesn't it? Jesus willingly left the indescribable glory and joy of the Trinity's presence to come to earth. 
Now look at verse 4 in Galatians 4 again. How did he come? How did the Father send him? He didn't come as a superhuman demigod. He came born of a woman. Obviously, this one who is God is also human. Being born of a woman speaks of his flesh. It speaks of his humanity. John 1, 1, 1, 14, right? The word was God in the beginning and was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, this word became flesh. This word took on flesh and dwelt among us. This is speaking of his full humanity. He's already the son sent, sent to be born of a woman. Listen to Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, our flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Philippians 2, 6 says that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? Taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. I say that to you, I know you know that, but we need to have this in our minds, that what Paul is saying here, that when midnight was struck on the date set for the maturity of his people, he sent his son who was born of a woman, fully God, fully human. And as he came as a human in verse 4, notice what it says. Not only born of a woman, but born under the law. He willingly left heaven's glory and the freedom, let's use that word, the freedom of the glory of the Trinity as the second person of the Trinity to enter into this life taking on flesh, fully human, and all the frailties and all the weaknesses that come along with just being a human, and not talking sin, we're just talking human frailty. And not only that, but he willingly came to be a human under subjection law. So he came not as a mature son to be treated, but he came as a slave. Because only a slave in our context is under enslavement, under the slave of the law, under the shackles of the law. Jesus came under the law. He came to be under that which we are under. He came to be like us. He was born under the law. He lived under the law. He died under the law. The penalty of the law which we broke, he paid, and he delivers us from all the claims that the law has on us. We learn from Scripture that he came to fulfill and not to destroy he, the law. He didn't come to abolish, but came to fulfill. In Romans 10, 4, it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the completion. He's the goal of the law. He fulfilled the law. He came under the law, subject to the law. He fulfilled every requirement of God's law. He never once transgressed God's law, and he paid the law's demands on the cross. He did positive obedience, and through, his, through the negative in the sense of paying the penalty, he fulfilled the law. And he came to do so. Notice why. Verse 5 that he might redeem those who were under the law. So he became under the law so that he might purchase back for himself, redeem those who were under the law. The redeem is to pay the ransom price, to purchase out of the slave market. The Son of God came into this life as though he was a slave to sin and the law in order that he might free those who were by nature and practice under the law. Amazing. As, as 
Um, we learned back in 313 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse that comes from transgressing God's law. He redeemed us from that penalty. How? By becoming a curse for us, treated as though he himself broke the laws of God. In Hebrews 2.17, it says that he was made, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and then this, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is this appeasement of the wrath of God. It is, a, it is to placate. It is to satisfy. It is a sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God to propitiate. Jesus came to do that. He had to be made like one of us in order to accomplish that. This redemption that he came to accomplish, the Father sent him to do this. This redemption, according to 1 Peter, was designed by God before time, before the foundation of time. In 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20, listen here, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. So the redemption commodity is not silver and gold, it's precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, and then this, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown is what? He was chosen. Foreknown has this idea of this intimate, personal knowledge relationship beforehand. It's often connected or has the idea of chosen. The Father chose the Son to be the Redeemer before the foundation of the world and was appeared in these last days to us. That's fascinating. That means redemption was designed and planned by God before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1. Amazingly, then, this glorious redemption, as we look at Galatians 4, 5, where it says that he might redeem those who were under the law, this, this redemption, not, that's not even the final purpose of God. Notice verse 5, he sent the Son not only to deliver us from the tyranny of sin and slavery, but that he might adopt us as sons. That he might adopt us as sons, that we might receive the redemption that God, through Christ, allows God to adopt us. The Romans had a system by which an aging man who had an heir or who had no heir or adult son could legally adopt an adult son, and through an extensive process, finally the young man would be considered his heir legally and be received into the family and called son legally with all the rights and privileges of the title of that family. And this was by the free choice of the father. This is the background that Paul's laying out here in verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons through this redemption. The father has designed the plan to adopt some for his adult sons. And this is determined by God before the world began. Can I remind you of Ephesians 1, 4? just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5 of Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It's glorious. 
This is the plan of the Father. So who we were is we were enslaved to the elementary basics of the world, all these rules and regulations. But when the fullness of time came in God's calendar, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to be, take on flesh, to not only take on flesh, but to come subject to law. He did so, died to pay the penalty, to redeem us, to pay the ransom price of those who are under slavery to law so that he might adopt us as sons. And this was all predetermined by God. Now, finally, look at verse 6. <laughs> who, who are we now? Because you are sons, verse 6. Because you are sons. What a glorious declaration. You are, for a fact, sons. Sons of God. This is your new position through faith. You're now in his family. You are an adult son, considered an adult son, an adopted adult son with all the privileges and rights of that position. The you there in verse 6 includes, obviously, believing Jews and Gentiles. And if you went to verse 28, it would be slave and free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is included in that verse 6 because you are sons. But notice in verse 6, where Paul goes here, the amazing gift of God to his adopted sons and daughters. Do you see it in verse 6? God the Father is still the prime mover. He's still the initiator here. Just as verse 4, he sent his son, the same words used in verse 6, he sent the spirit of his son. To whom does he send the spirit of his son? Into the hearts who are his sons, to his children. To believers. Now we don't want to get catawampus here on ordo salutis, right? Um, what does that mean? The Spirit of God, does he precede faith or does he go after faith, right? Well, there's texts that show that he goes before and there's texts that show that he's after. I think it has to do with context. This is not implying anything other than those who are the sons of God. God has given them his Spirit. Okay? Because the Spirit, if you remember, He convicts of sin and righteousness. He regenerates. Well, who does He regenerate? What condition are the people whom He regenerates? Spiritually dead. He makes them alive. He seals the believer. He's the, he's the engagement ring for final future glory. He fills, he leads, the Spirit does, and teaches and guides. He gifts us for service. He empowers us to witness. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He sanctifies us. So he does a lot of things, right? He's very active. He's very, he's very intentional and very active. But notice what Paul focuses here in verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, just to be sure we understand, the Spirit of His Son is the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, He's called the Spirit of Jesus. In Romans 8, 9, the Spirit of God is parallel with the Spirit of Christ. So, here in verse 6, the Spirit of His Son is the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Notice what He says here, please. This incredible gift, He comes... To our hearts. He comes to abide. He comes to take up residence. He comes to indwell. 
the sons of God. This is one of the major differences of living under law and under the promise. Why in the world would anybody want to avoid the Spirit of God and live under law? That's why I think David, when he tasted of the, of the presence of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. We don't have to worry about that as Christians because he permanently indwells us. But the point is this. The Holy Spirit comes sent by the Father, so the, the Spirit is submissive to the Father just as the Son is, comes on a mission designed by the Father. His mission in verse 6 here, this particular part of the mission, is to come into the hearts of those who are His sons, those who are His believers, His children, His adopted sons, and the Spirit comes into our hearts. Our hearts are the inner person, the true self, the core of our being, is our heart. It's often parallel with mind and spirit. It's our, it's our inner person. It's who we really are. The spirit comes and indwells us. And look at verse 6, this, this term Abba. From our hearts, the spirit of his son crying out, Abba, Father. Crying is the word for an outcry, a loud cry. Um, not cry of anguish only, but a cry of exaltation. It just speaks of when someone speaks loudly. Crying out like a herald in the street. Hear you, hear you, hear you. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. The Spirit says here in verse 6, He's crying out loudly. Notice what He's crying out. He's crying out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is this Aramaic term of, of filial familiarity. It, it's the idea of daddy. It was used in families when a little kid spoke of my papa. Mi kindred, <laughs> right? My, 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 my daddy, my dad. Um, it's used three times in the New Testament. It's used of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's in the garden and he cries out, Abba, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me, if there's any other way. But he cries out, Abba, Father. You see, what we're being brought into here is the inner Trinitarian affections of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. Because the, the Father sent the Spirit particularly to those who are His children. The result in verse 6 of the Spirit coming is that it gives me this assurance that God the Father loves me. God the Father wants me. God the Father welcomes me. God the Father hears me. In this the Holy Spirit within us moves us to not be afraid of the Almighty, but to call Him for who He is to us. He is my Daddy. He is my Father. He is my Papa. So it's talking about this relationship that is intimate and dear and tender. It is the gift of God to the believer because it's the result of the Holy Spirit's coming. You see, and this takes it beyond the mere formality of man-made religion and rules and regulations and takes it up into the stratosphere of relationship with the living God. Amen? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, says a voice from the cloud at the baptism of Jesus. 
In John 17, 24, Jesus praying to his father says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Why? For you love me before the foundation of the world. The father's love for the son. In John 14, 31, but so the world might know that I love the father, says Jesus, I do exactly as the father commanded me. The son came to earth out of love for the Father, and he came to do all that the Father had sent him to do. Of course, it's climaxed in the cross. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, says the Son of God in the garden. Remain here and watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him. And he was saying, was saying, continually, constantly, was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, and yet not what I want, but what you will. You see, this is the heart of the son towards the father in the most stressful of situations, as though the pressure on this blessed soul squeezed this out of the depths of his heart. He said, Daddy, Papa. You see, this close relationship and affection is what becomes ours through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That intimacy is ours likewise because the Spirit was sent into our hearts to give us the assurance of sonship. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leaving to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Isn't that glorious? Listen to Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out. Can you use your sanctified imagination and see a picture full of the love of God being poured out into the vessel of your heart? It's the love of, what, of God for me that's being poured out in my heart. It's not my love for God. It is being convinced by the Spirit that the Father loves you. It's love for God, not his love for us. It is the work of the Spirit then to assure the believer of that great truth. The outer, think of this, that's, that's somewhat subjective. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a hope, it's an attitude of I, I sense this. I have this conviction in my soul of God's love for me. The, the outer, tangible, physical event that proves what I'm feeling inside is the cross of Christ. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. How? When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the cross is the outer expression proving God's love for you on the outside. The spirit sent to you on the inside is crying out from the inside, Daddy. Daddy. The two work together, you see. All right. Oh, I love that idea. That crying little baby is who we were before Christ saved us. That little baby can't just Take off across the street, I'm pop. No, man, mama's going to chase him down and grab him. Get over here, Junior. Right? That's the law. But once you come to faith, like you guys, you're no longer in the nursery. 
I mean, Vitalik, if you were in the nursery at this age, we'd all say something wrong with you, boy. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> right? That's what has happened here. This is what he's saying. And since you've come to faith in Christ, he's given you his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convinces you that Papa loves you and that you cry out from the depths of your soul this relationship with God, your Father. And you call him Daddy. And he goes on to say, and we'll finish. <laughs> oh, boy. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Those are statements of reality. They're not subject. They're not, they're not hope. They happen. They are a reality in verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. That means you've been removed out from the law that he's mentioned in verses 1 through 3. You've been removed out. You've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've experienced the redemption of verses 4 and 5. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's convincing you. He's working in you. He has connected you with God. You see God as your daddy. Christ is your brother. He goes on to say, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if that's not good enough, he says, not only that, you're an heir. Just as we learned last week in Romans 8, we're not only heirs of God, but we're fellow heirs with Christ. An heir is one who inherits. Christ is going to inherit all that belongs to his father. You and I are brought in by massive grace to that intertrinitarian promise that I have granted all these things to my son. The title deed of the earth and the, that's mentioned in Revelation in the unrolling of the scrolls is Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to do so because he's the only one to whom it belongs. And guess what? And to me. I know that might rock your world. But that's how gracious God is. He has given to me by grace what he's bequeathed by rights to his son. And I'm a fellow heir with Jesus Christ by merely believing. I, and think of this. The thief on the cross is just as much an heir as you are. No less and no more. Because he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of grace that brings about revival. This is the gospel of grace that awakens a sleepy church. This is the gospel. This is the message that rescues sinners from hell. And so we go forth. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and we are heirs. Let's take that message out there. I better quit. Forgive me. Lord, thank you for this word. Please take my attempts and use it for your glory. Convince us of your love and affection and would you stir our souls to, to leave here with a greater passion to make you known because you are worth all that we can do and have and all that we, we want to please you. Thank you that we are secure and the inheritance is ours by grace. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.